0: We're in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Hi, good evening. I don't know about the rest of you, but I found those slides particularly unhelpful. Because I know you're just all going to be thinking about cookies the whole night, and I know I certainly am, so if I get a little bit distracted, please forgive me. I was away this weekend, we did some strategic planning with Common Change. I've got the little microphone box on, so if I sound a bit different, I'm going to be moving around a little bit later. And I told some people earlier, I'm going to do laps, we're going to have an Olympic theme, and I'm going to run around the pews seven times while I preach, but that's not going to happen. I think I'll do that one day, because that could be fun. But anyway, so we came back from this weekend, and I'm feeling quite sick, and So I'm just putting that out as a disclaimer at the start. If I run out there at any time during the preach, Erin's going to come up and finish it for me. She's promised. And I had this idea of telling a joke. And telling jokes in sermons is always dangerous. Telling jokes in a foreign country where people can't understand your language half the time is even more dangerous. And so I put a question mark and I decided that I wasn't going to tell it. But now that I'm sick, I figure I've got an excuse either way. So this is probably the best time to put it out there because I've already got my excuse. Do you guys know the Smurfs? Do you have them in this country? Like, not personally. I mean, you know who they are. Like, some people, they are nodding. Like, we talk at night. Anyway. Okay, so this is a little story about the Smurfs. And the Smurfs, at this point in time in their history, are going through crisis. Because every day when they go down to the lake to get some water, this wolf jumps out and eats a few of them. I figure I should stop there, but there's more. That's actually the sad part of the joke, Eric. Anyway, so the Smurfs are getting eaten, like, daily. And if you know the Smurfs, you know that there's a lot of inherent dangers with that. Because, for starters, there's only one girl Smurf. So they put her right in the middle and protect her as they go down to the water. But daily, like, the wolf's coming and just eating a whole bunch of them. So Papa Smurf calls all the Smurfs together. And he says, Smurfs, he stands on a matchbox, because that's like a stage for them. And he says, Smurfs, we've got this problem our friends are dying, we need somebody to stand, look out. And so there's the whole crowd of Smurfs, nobody acts. But right at the back of the crowd, Stutter Smurf is like super amped. And so he stands up and he puts his hand in there and he goes, me. me, me." And so Papa Smurf kind of looks to the middle of the crowd and he says, okay Smurfs, we've got this problem, we need volunteers, who's going to help? Stutter Smurf is not put off. He fights his way to the middle of the crowd and he stands there and he puts up his hand and he's jumping up and he's going, mum mm-m mm 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 me. So by now Papa Smurf's like looking at his feet and like they're not so far away anyway. So he's looking at the bottom like front row Smurfs, like who's going to volunteer? Who's going to help us out with the wolf? Stutter Smurf is just like, this is the thing that I was created for. I want to do this thing. And so he fights his way to the front of the crowd and he's jumping up in front of Papa Smurf, going, mm 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 me. And so Papa Smurf eventually is like, okay, stutter smurf, you can do this job. Um, You can stand on lookout and protect us. Shout out when the wolf comes as we go to get water. So the next day, the smurfs head off to go get water. Stutter smurf is hiding in the bushes and suddenly nothing happens. Just building some dramatic tension. Anyway, the following day, they're going off to get some water and suddenly the wolf comes out and stutter smurf shouts, wolf, wolf, and all the smurfs hide and scatter and hide and the wolf comes out and he doesn't get any of the Smurfs because they were hiding. And so the wolf kind of eventually slinks away into the distance. And the Smurfs are so excited and they grab Stutter Smurf and they throw him into the air. And Stutter Smurf goes hip hip. And the Smurfs go hooray and Stutter Smurf goes hip hip. And the Smurfs go hooray and Stutter Smurf goes hip hip. And they all get trampled by hippopotamus. It's a Hippopotamus. The a Hippopotamus because he's stuttering. Anyway. So we start off with the story of Moses and the story of, are you still explaining it? Because okay. he started, anyway. So started off with this amazing story of Moses having his hands held up in the air. And the basis or the, the focus of the preach this evening is going to be, what is the difference between David and Samson? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity that we have to come and gather as your church. I want to thank you for just the buzz that happens when we give people five minutes just to go and meet people and introduce themselves. And, and I want to thank you for just a place that Val and I have really just felt at home and really welcomed in. I pray that that can be the experience of anyone that visits here, that they really just feel that this is a home where they can hang out and they can learn about you and they can be loved and they can find opportunities to serve. And I just pray that you will be with this message this evening. I pray that you will really just target our hearts I pray that you will just touch us where we need to be touched and just highlight the areas that we need to hear. I pray that we will leave changed. And we just thank you for your presence that is thick in this place. Father, we just invite more of you. Let us experience. Let us know your love. Let your love be the very thing that just inspires us to love other people. And so I pray that you will be with us. Help me as I try to work my way through this preach and just let us really just hear what's on your heart this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, the Sunday evening service has a little bit of a reputation, in my head, anyway. I don't know about Alberts, And in South Africa, I'm coming a little closer because you always sit far back, so usually I just make people move closer. This time I thought, I'll just come to you. But in South Africa, traditionally, Sunday night services are youth services and student services, and so those ones have the reputation of being like, wow. But at Regen, for some reason, there's a bunch of amazing people here, and I know a lot of you. And for some reason, sometimes, Sunday nights is a little bit, like, scary to be the guy up there, which is why I'm not anymore. So I just want to say, I don't know if we haven't communicated this before, but Sunday nights, you are allowed to smile, if you want, while the person is preaching, just throwing that out there. Okay, cool. I thought, like, let's do something a little bit different. Let's make something visual that will stick in your heads. And so when you think of the weirdness that happened at church on Sunday, you're going to be like, okay, there was a message, and that's what it was. So I'm going to invite you to just be a little weird. I'll be doing most of the weird, but... We're gonna do something, and I need two volunteers. I need a volunteer who can kind of come across as Samson. So that rules some of you out. I won't mention anyone, but do I have a volunteer? Somebody like, you got a little bit of extra hair, I know it probably should be me. Do I have a Samson volunteer today? Anyone? You feeling a bit buff? Anyone? Nathan, hair? Yeah. Yeah! Okay, so if you can come to the front and be Samson, and then on the other side, I'm going to be needing somebody who's David. So if you can just stand next to the communion, somebody who's David. So you're you're a little younger looking, you are going to be king of Israel, I don't know if you're feeling this, let's volunteer someone else, that's an even cooler game. Who are we pointing at? Eric Lowe, people are pointing at you, come up and be David. I think for this to be authentic, you're going to have to kneel. (laughs) But if you kneel, you'll probably get tired, so anyway, you can stand, it's fine. Okay, so on my left, I have Samson, and on my right, I have a really tall version of David. (laughs) Now, I want to ask you, just in your brains, if you think, I chose two really well-known stories. I think most of you will know the story of Samson. Had that whole kind of hair run in with his wife, beat up people with the jawbone of a donkey. He did, like, a lot of violent things, killed a lot of people. David and Goliath played a harp, wrote a lot of psalms. Just kind of picture in your head some of the stories that revolve around these people. And I want to ask you, what is the difference? And let me just give you some of the things that are the same. Because there's a lot of similarities between these two young, beautiful people. They were both born within the same time period, between 1200 and 1000 BC. They both lived around the same time period. They were both young men. They were both called by God at a young age. Samson was called, prophesied, even before he was born. God had kind of laid his hand and mark on him. David gets called as a young boy. There's that whole time when Samuel goes to anoint the new king, and he looks at all the brothers, and he works his way down, and eventually there's the little kid that's out back watching over the sheep, and God says, this is the guy that I've chosen to be king. So same time period, both young men, both called by God, both leaders of Israel, Samson was a judge. And David was a king who were both kind of the top most person in Israel at the time. And the big thing about both of them is that both of them sinned sexually. Samson married somebody that was outside of the tribe of Israel that he wasn't supposed to do. But if you read his story, he actually does it a couple of times. He's like a dodgy oak. And David, if you know his story, David is remembered as the man after God's own heart. But right in the middle of this amazing story, David sins sexually like in the worst kind of possible way. So he takes one of his top generals who's out fighting wars on his behalf and he sleeps with that general's wife. And then she falls pregnant, which is a difficult thing to cover up when the husband's like away at war. And so he brings the husband back from war and he creates this whole drama where he tries to make it look like they slept together. But the husband is so virtuous that he sleeps outside on the doorstep while he's at home. And that's also pretty hard to prove. And so David gets caught up, and so like he just keeps on getting caught up in these different lies, and he keeps on trying to cover them, and they get worse and worse and worse. And eventually David has Bathsheba's husband killed. Like he plots this whole thing, and he has him killed, and then he ends up marrying Bathsheba. So we got these two guys living in the same time period, both young men, both called by God, both leaders of Israel, both sinned sexually in really bad, hectic ways. And the way the story ends is that Samson dies. He gets to kill a bunch of Philistines under the temple. He has his eyes gouged out because of the whole thing with Delilah, his wife, all his strength was in his hair. And she kept asking, Samson, why are you so strong? And he kept on telling her all these fake things. And eventually, he gets tired of her nagging. And he tells her, it's my hair. If you cut my hair, then I'll lose all my strength. And so they attack him. They cut his hair. They gouge out his eyes. And right at the end, he gets to push the temple over and kind of kill a whole bunch of people while he dies. But his kind of future after he sins sexually is that he ends up dying as a result. Whereas David, there's consequences to the sin. His son, Babat gets killed, taken away from him. But he goes on to stay the king of Israel. And he goes on to be remembered in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. And so you've got these two guys with such strong similarities in their life. They both mess up completely One of them dies as a result, and one of them gets to carry on and gets this amazing reputation and lives. And I want to share something tonight, just something as a means of thinking why that might possibly be so. And I'm going to let you guys sit down in a moment, but let's just just bear with me now. And so in 1 Samuel 20, let me just grab... And I'm going to need a few more volunteers, and the quicker you do this, the less this will drag out. So just as soon as you hear a character that sounds like you, pop to the front. 1 Samuel 20, verse 16 to 17, we hear of this guy, David had this friend called Jonathan, and just part of the story, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And David's enemy at the time was Jonathan's dad, so that's pretty hectic. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. So David has this good friend, Jonathan. They are tight buddies, loves him as he loves himself. So can we have a Jonathan? Yes? Pick one? Cool. Jonathan, come to the front. (laughs) Next up in 1 Samuel 16, (laughs) I already mentioned Samuel. Samuel was the guy that anointed David. Samuel was someone that acted as a mentor to David. He was the priest at the time. He walked alongside David, and he just helped him with a lot of things. So do we have a Samuel, slightly older, mature, mentoring type person? Who's your Samuel? Andrew. Cool, Andrew. Again, <laughs> okay, 2 Samuel 12, you've got the story where, as I mentioned, David had just done this hectic sin, and 2 Samuel 12, if you want some good bedtime reading, that is an amazing chapter. The heading of the chapter is, Nathan rebukes David. And Nathan comes along to David and he tells this little parable about this rich guy and all his sheep and this little guy and this one little lamb and how the rich guy kills the lamb of the little guy. And it's so beautiful when, like David burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then one of my favorite lines in the Bible, I've got lots of favorite verses, but this is a Hollywood lion. That is just one of my favorites. So David is like, ah, this guy should die. He's so evil and everything should happen to him. And then verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Hey, can you just see Russell Crowe? No, he's not. But anyway, like some big Hollywood heavyweights going, you are the man. And so choose your Nathan. Oh, that's hard in this church. (laughs) There's like 20 Nathans. Okay, Zach, you're Nathan. That's going to get totally confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, like, Zach being Nathan and coming rebuking you, but it's probably because you used the wrong kind of coffee. Anyway. (laughs) And so, a prophet, somebody in David's life that was able to speak hard truth into his life. So, we've got Jonathan, who's his best mate. I love you more than I love or as much as I love myself. We've got Samuel, who's a little bit of an older guy, a mentor that walked alongside him, that spoke truth, that helped open and unlock the law of God to him. And then we've got Nathan, the prophet who was able to stand in front of him and say, you've done wrong, David, you have messed up. And in Old Testament times, you don't ever go say that to the king and live much longer. And yet Nathan took his own life into his hands because he loved David and he was so obedient to God. So he had that person in his life. And then lastly, 2 Samuel 23, we've got this group of oaks that are known as David's mighty men. And I won't read the whole chapter, but there's 37 of these oaks that were kind of like the Expendables, the first version, Expendables BC. So this is a story of just three of them. So amongst the mighty men, there were like the top three oaks. Verse 13 to 17. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Abdullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in a stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. So Bethlehem had been taken over by the Philistines. I say Philistines, you probably say Philistines, so I'm alternating, so we all happy. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. That would probably irritate me a bit if I was a mighty man. But basically, Bethlehem's taken over. David says, oh, I wish I could have the really good Bethlehem water. And so these three men break into the enemy compounds. Like anyone that thinks the Bible is boring just has to follow like the story of the mighty men. They break into this compound to get like a cup of water. I don't even know if they had cups in those days. I don't know if they like held it in their hands or kept it in their beard or something. I don't know. Anyway, so they bring it back to David and he goes, ah, oh, no, that's too special. And he throws it on the ground. So you need 37 mighty men. So you don't all have to come to the front, but maybe just count them off and just have them stand up where they are. So let's have 37 mighty men. Go for it. So just as Eric pointed you, just stand where you are. <laughs> One, two, come on, just stand. Let's stand. Let's stand. Let's go. 37. How many you got there, Eric, on the right? Okay, you got nine. How are we doing? Probably 37. Everyone stand up. I think we're about 37, 3, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 30, 14, 6, 7, 20, 20, 21, 22, 22, 23, 22, 22, 23, 22, 22, 26, 30, 30, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, okay, 37 mighty men and five friends. Okay, so just take this in for a moment, just take this in, we got Samson, Samson's a bit of a lone ranger, he goes off by himself, he does stupid things, he gets <laughs> tempted quite easily by women and breaks the rules by crossing the boundaries that God had put in mind for Israel. And so every single time that Samson goes out by himself, well, there's so many times when he just goes out, he's by himself, he messes up. You've got David on the other side who's got his best friend. He's got a mentor in his life. He's got a prophet who has the ability to speak truth into his life. He's got a posse of 37 people that are willing to give their lives for him. And so this isn't a biblical teaching or anything you can take directly from Scripture, but I want to put it to you that a lot of what had to do with David's story ending a lot more happily than Samson's is that he surrounded himself with godly people. So take a seat. I'll get back to the top, and we'll carry this on. Thank you. And give David and Samson a round of applause. So because David is in community, even when he messes up, there's people that are there for him. There's people that are pointing out the sin, speaking truth in love. There's people that are his friends that help him to go through what happens. Because as I mentioned, with Bathsheba, his son dies. And yet he's got friends. He's got people around him that are supporting him, that are caring for him, that are able to lead him beyond his mess-ups. Whereas Samson is always by himself. And so there's no stories of Samson really having people like pouring into his life and really helping him out. Now, I don't know, like everyone has different degrees of being online and in certain conversations and stuff. But there's been a lot of stuff online recently about a guy called Don Miller. Any of you know him? Anyone read a book called Blue Like Jazz or watched a media movie called Blue Like Jazz? So Don Miller is an author. He's written a couple of books that people like. And a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, he linked to an article on his blog where he basically said that he didn't find traditional church effective for him. His learning style wasn't best received by being preached to. There were certain aspects of it that didn't relate to him. And in essence, he kind of said that he's left the church in terms of traditional church, like it's not the thing that really is effective for him. And a few days later, he said that he'd received like the most anger and hatred and negative remarks from anything he'd ever posted, specifically from Christian people, because I don't think non-Christians would really care so much in response to him saying that he'd walked away from church or he'd found a different kind of way of doing it or or was trying to kind of come up with the idea that maybe church looks a lot bigger than only meeting together on a Sunday. And so I found that story really interesting, and I'm not going to go into, like, all kind of my ideas. My idea is that church is a lot bigger than just what happens on a Sunday. However, the most important thing that kind of comes out of the whole story of the stuff that happened with Don Miller and kind of our regular church going is that as much as I feel that maybe church can look even more different than just this, there is clear teaching in Scripture that God created us for relationship, that God created us for community. And so you can strip away some of the aspects of what a Sunday meeting looks like or a Sunday congregational meeting, but you can never strip away. Like, you get a lot of Christians that are like, I'm done with church. I'm going to go just do this thing by myself. Like, it's not a biblical approach to walk away from community and try to be a Jesus follower by yourself. Like, that message is clear in Scripture. And so, even though some of the other things, there might be a little bit of debate and discussion that we can come together, the Bible is very clear that we are called to do this thing together. We are called to love each other. We are called to continue to meet as we've been meeting. We are called, whether it's in small groups or bigger groups, to wrestle with the stuff of Scripture, to work on the stuff together, to be living it out, both in community with people that follow Jesus, but also outside of that, with people that don't know Jesus, so that we can attract Them to him so that we can share the message. And you can see from the beginning, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So he creates Adam, and there's something wrong. There's something missing in creation. Adam's got all the animals and all the best kind of fruits and foods or whatever, but there's this loneliness, there's this ache, there's this sense that relationship was missing. And even before Adam is created, we see this amazing, beautiful relationship. And there's a Greek word which I can't remember. But it talks about kind of the dance of the Trinity and how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in this kind of relationship where nobody's really kind of leading. There's all kind of different roles and different aspects of who they are, but just all kind of pulled into this one beautiful thing. And so even God in Himself, as the one God we serve, even He is in relationship. And that started at the beginning. God calls us to be in relationship. It is not good for man to be alone. And then the idea of church is a Jesus following people in community, whatever that looks like. But the idea is that we do this thing in community. And so I want to say that it is essential to living and growing and being effective as a Jesus follower and having an impact in the world. We can do so much more together than we can do by ourselves. And so we see Jesus do this, where he takes on a group of 12 people, the disciples, and he works with them for three years. And there's moments where you've got Jesus in the big crowd, there's moments where there's Jesus and 120 of his followers, disciples, and then there's moments where Jesus says, okay, we're going to take 12 of you out of that, and you guys are going to be my special band, and we're going to spend extra time together. And so some of his parables, some of his stories are reserved just for the 12, and for three years, Jesus pours into this group of people. And even within that people, there's James, Peter, and John that get some special assignments. So Jesus even has his kind of core group of best friends within his disciples. One of the stories that comes to mind is the story of Jairus' daughter. It's one time where it says he takes Peter, James, and John with, and not the rest of the disciples. And so there's a miracle that only they get to witness when the transfiguration happens. It's Peter, James, and John that are there. And so the sense of Jesus even like kind of pouring special ministry and mission into those, the group of three close friends. And then a model which I found really helpful, and I think we can see it demonstrated in Scripture, even if we can't see it like in a verse that says, thou shalt do it like this. But just something that I found in my life, which is very helpful and it's very simple, and you're going to be like, well, duh, is the idea of kind of a one-up, one-down model. Where from Jesus, we see the example that he spent a lot of time with his father. He pulls away from the crowds and his disciples even to go pray on mountains, to pray through the night, to spend time receiving from above. So getting topped up, getting filled, getting new mission, new message, just really connecting with God and just like really getting strength for whatever was to come. And then we see a sense of him pushing that into imparting, teaching, pouring that into his disciples. And so in the same way that Jesus did that, I think it's essential for us to do that. Not only when I talk about God, like up down from God, but also people in our lives. That Jesus had this amazing connection with God where he was able to like clearly hear stuff and really just be led into his mission. And for us sometimes, like it's really helpful to have people that are really being able to pour into our lives and mentor. Just as David had someone like Samuel that had walked a long road, that knew the scriptures well, that was able to really pour into his life. We see in the story of Timothy where Paul speaks to Timothy about how his mother and his grandmother had really poured a lot into his life. And so the question that I really want us to look at as we leave tonight, as we go into the week, is who are these people in your life? Who are the people that you are inviting to pour into your life? Who are the people whose wisdom you are pulling on? Who are the people whose stories you are listening to, whose mistakes you are learning from? Who are the people at whose feet you sit just to kind of listen to them and just to kind of like hear how things have been done? And then who are the people that you are pouring into? Who are the people that you are intentionally taking as, in a sense, your disciples, in a sense, people that you are mentoring and pouring into in whatever way that happens? If you're not intentional about these things, then they're never going to happen. They're not, like mentoring relationships just don't really ever just kind of happen by themselves. It's something where you've got to decide, I want to invite this person to speak into my life, or you've got to decide, I want to spend time with this person and hope that I can pour something into their life. So the idea of one-up, and it's not like maybe the directional thing doesn't help because it sounds like they're better or superior or anything like that. And it could even be kind of peer-to-peer. But I find it's helpful when it's somebody that's lived longer just because their experience is, is kind of a lot longer. And the idea of walking with somebody that's walked maybe one step further than you, that's got one skill or one story or one strength or whatever it is that they can really start imparting to you and just start sharing with you, And the idea of inviting that person into your life. I know in South Africa, and I feel like it's probably the same here, that one of our biggest weaknesses in the church as a whole was the idea of mentorship and leaders pouring into young people. And a lot of young people my age got really frustrated because they grew up and they were like, oh, there was no one to mentor us. And it's kind of almost the next generation comes up and they say the same thing. And so sometimes you have to get a little bit more intentional. Sometimes you have to get a little more awkward or just a little more practical because these things aren't going to happen by themselves. And so if you're wanting an older person or somebody that's kind of walked a different journey, a longer journey than you, to mentor you, sometimes you have to go to them and say, hey, can we meet? Can we meet regularly? Can we meet once a month for breakfast? Can we meet once a week for coffee? And actually just start inspiring relationship. If you go up to people and say, hey, will you mentor me? That will probably scare the heck out of a lot of people. And so it can start as simple as just building relationship and saying, hey... I really want to learn. I really want to hear your story. I really want to know the journey you've walked. Would it be okay if I bought you coffee once a week, if I bought you a milkshake once a week, if we went out to Ollie's for pancakes and waffles or whatever it is? Ollie's? I don't know. I feel like it should be Ollie's, but we've just discovered that. It's amazing. It's in Alameda if you don't know good pancakes. But I just feel there's something so beneficial in terms of instigating those kind of relationships on a regular basis. So we're all quite busy. Maybe we can't all do once a week. And maybe just starting once a month, then it means like for 12 times through the next year, I'm inviting somebody to share wisdom and speak into my life. If you can do once a week, I think the regular thing really helps out. And then the one down thing is much easier, as John mentioned. We've got a youth ministry that is just waiting for people to come and say, hey, I've got time. And I do my church servicing on a Sunday evening. So Sunday mornings, I'm totally free. And I've just been waiting for someone at the front to say, hey, come and hang out with youth once or twice a month. You're all invited. If you want to hang out with the youth, come chat to me. We'll see if we can make it happen. But even just in your own life, of being able to look around, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone that's younger. Maybe it's just a buddy of yours. Of saying, like, hey, let's meet. Let's put something together. Let's do something where we can kind of work through stuff. It could be online. Like, the world has got a lot more smaller with technology. So it could be something that you do via Skype or online with somebody if they happen to be further away. But face-to-face, like, you can't beat that. So I'd say that really is the best thing, of just sitting down with somebody regularly, even if it's just having coffee and talking about how your week was, and just building relationship through that, and hopefully at some time introducing some kind of aspect of mentoring in that. And so two questions. Who have you invited to speak into your life? And then whose life are you pouring into? And again, like if you're not intentional, if you're not doing it, it's not going to suddenly happen. So as you're sitting there, I believe the Holy Spirit is going to be popping people's names into your head. So some of you are sitting there, and for some reason, this older person is in your head, or maybe there's a youth person, or maybe it's your next-door neighbor's kid, and you're like, sure, I could hang with them once a week. I could maybe invite them to go run around the lake with me. I know coffee is not everyone's deal. But finding something, it could be a hobby, it could be something that you're both going to enjoy doing together. And just saying, hey... Let's do this once a week and see how it goes. Just two stories from my own life. When I was at school or at teacher's training college, once a week, these used to be kind of slots that I'd try to fill in my life. As I look back, it wasn't necessarily a sense of me going, oh, I need to always have this. But as I look back, I see that for the most part, they just were slots that ended up happening in my life because I was intentional about seeing some people and saying, hey, you two guys, let's meet once a week. And so when I was a youth leader at a Baptist church, there was a guy called Mark and a guy called Julian. And we used to meet at 7 o'clock in the morning once a week for a couple of years. And often, like, there were times when I'd be woken up by knocks on my window because I'd overslept and missed the alarm or whatever. But other times of just, like, really getting together. And sometimes those times are incredible and amazing, and the angels pitch up, and You lift off the floor, and it's amazing. And other times, you just battle to stay awake, or you fall asleep during prayer, and it's horrendous, and you feel bad, and you want to give up youth ministry. But just the relationships that kind of developed with those people over a period of three years or five years or whatever it is. When I was at college, another guy at school was a guy called Matthew. Him and this other girl and I used to meet every week for prayer and just pray for our school. And we'd get to school 30 minutes early, once a week, and just be praying for the school. Uh, when I was at college, there was one of my best friends now, Mandy, and we'd meet for an hour once a week. Just get together, pray for the college, pray for what God was doing, pray for each other and stuff like that. And there were various times where other people joined us, but often it was just two or three of us, but just getting those regular rhythms. And if I look back at my friendships with all those people I've mentioned, they're all really strong now, and I feel like that was such a strong part. And it wasn't like we did official Bible studies or anything like that. Those were just simply prayer meetings. And then at my last church in Stellenbosch in South Africa, I used to have breakfast and early morning coffee with a couple of guys. I was kind of doing student pastoring at a church. We had a congregation about this size. And two or three guys once a week, we used to get together for breakfast or coffee. And at certain times, we'd go through a book. So we'd go through the book of Ephesians, like by next week, just read Ephesians chapter one. We get together. What's one thing that stood out for you? Oh, this. What's one thing that stood out for you? I really like this, so I didn't understand this. And so very, very simple, but together we're going through the Bible. When it was me and my youth, I'd find that I would learn so much from their passion and often like their fresh eyes of looking at the Bible. So a story that I've read a thousand times, they're reading for the third time, and so they see something that I haven't seen, or they see something that I'm so used to that I gloss over, and so it's like, whoa, that's exciting, that's amazing. And so, like the whole idea of top-down kind of falls away, because I would find that I'm getting mentored by my young people as I'm mentoring them, and it's really just a case of actually we're hanging out and we're mentoring each other, because you've got something from your young aspect of passion and fire for life that is being imparted to me, and hopefully, There's something from my experience, from my having studied some of these passages a bit longer, from my having seen these things in action that I'm pouring into you. And when it's older guys, hopefully it's the same thing that's happening to me. And hopefully my sense of passion and excitement is being able to be fed into them. And so these relationships, as a pastor, pastoring a church, you look out and you go, wow, I really don't have time to kind of visit everyone this week. And I don't have time to make all the connections I want to. And I can't even remember everyone's names. And I've asked that person for the last four weeks what their name was, and it felt really bad. And it's really hard if we expect one person here to do all the work for everyone out there. But the moment everyone out there picks two people, one person to pour into your life, one person that you're pouring into, suddenly, 37 plus 5, 42 people are getting mentored. Suddenly, 42 people are having people pour into their lives, and then hopefully that passes on to other people, and you've got the whole idea of a knock-on effect that together we are discipling each other in this walk with Christ. And so it's not necessarily where you're getting your main teaching or anything like that, but it's starting to wrestle with people, starting to work through the Bible, starting to do a lot of the stuff that maybe you do by yourself, but now doing it with other people. And then I want to finish off by just two passages, and the one is the one you know, just the idea of the body, that the church is described as the body that certain parts are stronger at times and other parts are weaker and the stronger parts look after the weaker parts and the parts that are shameful we cover up and treat with extra honor. And this idea that as we look out, if I knew all your giftings and all your skills and all your passions, like it would be completely different. But if we took all of those skills and passions in this building right now and wrote them down and said, this is our resource pile, that is insane, that is amazing. And so as the body functions, as we function at a church, We've got the musical people doing music stuff. We've got the food people doing food stuff. We've got the coffee people doing coffee stuff. We've got the hospitality people. We've got the refugee people reaching out there. And so this body starts to look amazing as the body of Christ starts to be the body of Christ. Suddenly church becomes this amazing, powerful thing. That is not just a meeting that we all attend once a week because it's happening out there during the week. It's happening in your spare time. It's happening in your work. It's happening all over the place. And so the idea that the body is made up of parts, we're all different, but we are all crucial to the running of the body. And so the hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you. And the eye cannot say to the foot, you're useless, because we all need each other to work really well. And we need the body to function together so that as regeneration part of the body of Christ, we can function really well in this area and have an impact for Jesus. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite verses in the Bible is in Proverbs 27, verse 6, and I think I'm going to finish with this. And it says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The importance of giving people permission to speak truth in your life. And we saw this in the life of David, and we saw how crucial it was that it was at a turning point in his life where he just messed up so completely, and it was just spiraling and snowballing, and he was on the very edge, and the man of God comes before him and just speaks truth in his life, and he says, David, you messed up. Have you invited people to speak into your life? And this is how I see this playing out. There's a practical sense, and there's like what actually happens. Or a theoretical sense and a practical sense. The theoretical sense is that for me as a Christian, and especially maybe as somebody who's in a pastoring role or a leading role, I am accountable to everybody in the world. Every single Christian has the ability to come to me and say, well, you say you believe this, but you're not living it up. And every single non-Christian, they do that anyway. They love to look at when we mess up and go, ah, you Christians are supposed to be loving and kind and forgiving, but you're not doing it. And so on a theoretical level, every single person in the world has the ability to come and speak into my life, and I'm accountable to them. Practically, like what really happens is that unless I go to Albert and say, Albert, I really want you to hold me accountable. Here are some areas that I'm struggling with. I really need your help in this. Like in that sense, when Albert notices something in me, or when he looks at that area, or he comes to me and says, hey, how's this area going, or whatever, when he comes and speaks a hard truth in my life, because I've invited that voice, I'm more likely to listen to it. And so even though I'm accountable to all of you, if one of you comes up and says, oh, you're doing this thing, I might maybe find an excuse or find a reason not to listen to you or whatever it is, and hopefully not. But once I've given that invitation, I've given him permission to speak into my life. And I want to tell you that from living for 40 years... Some of my best friendships in life and some of the most crucial things, and I think maybe some of them point to the fact that I can still be passionate for God and and sold out for Him and wanting to live my life for Him, are the fact that I invited people to speak painful truths in my life. And some of my best friends are the people that wound me. Because we don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told that pride is kicking in. or We don't like to have our sin kind of rubbed in our faces. And so one of my best friends back home is a guy called Rob. And there's been countless conversations both ways, where we just hurt each other, but we walk away and we go, wow, I know Rob loves me. Like, I know that without a doubt. We've built a relationship. We've got this friendship. There's no doubt of that. I need to look at this thing that he said, which I really don't want to listen to right now, and I need to, like, examine the scriptures and examine my heart and life and go, oh, my word, he's right. He wounded me because he attacked my ego, my pride, or whatever it is. But he's right, and so I go back, and I sort out that thing, and I fix it, and I go, Rob, thank you for once again saving me. Do it again. Do you have those people in your life that you've given permission to speak truth? And I love the phrase in the Bible where it talks about speaking truth in love, because if you give that permission to the wrong people, then you can be severely damaged. If you give it to people that you trust their love completely, then it makes it a lot easier to hear. Wounds. From a friend can be trusted. And the second part, an enemy multiplies kisses. It's a big thing in the church, but I think it's a big thing in the world, is that we hate conflict. I feel like I know some people that really seem to love conflict. But I think mostly, most people I know hate conflict and shy away from it. And also we've created a lot of kind of traditions and things in life where conflict becomes difficult. How do you like my new haircut? You always like their new haircuts. (laughs) Do these jeans make me look fat? Never, never in the history of life have jeans made anyone look fat. (laughs) So we've created systems where we encourage people to lie because we don't want our feelings to be hurt. And so that blurs the lines in all sorts of other areas. And I really feel this is huge. I've got such a huge heart for honesty. Like, honesty for me is something that God has just put, like, huge in front of me. And it's an area where I'm probably completely broken and need to work on. But that area, like, when we start to, like, lie and mistruth and white lie and little bendy, blurry things, like, we cause so much damage. And so when you're living a life that is kind of off the rails and you're moving away from what God's teaching, like, most of your friends and your mates will spur you on in that. Like, that's the reality. Like, people do not want to come to you and say, dude, you're getting it wrong, or like you're messing up. Because we don't want conflict. And so we would rather throw kisses, we'd rather be mates, laugh at the stories, just hear stuff, that's okay, give nice platitudes, whatever it is. And yet God is calling us to be real with each other. He's calling us to wound with love. Because what happens there is transformation. When we multiply kisses, we endorse sin, We cover it over, we say that it's not so bad, and nothing changes. And so I want to encourage you two things tonight. I want you to go and look for people that you can invite to speak in your life if you don't have that. Today, like we've got it easier with books and podcasts and all those kind of things, but find a live person. And if you don't know who that person is, speak to one of the leaders in the church, because maybe there's somebody here that's just dying to do that. And invite relationship. And then find somebody, at least one person, who is younger than you or maybe hasn't walked the same amount of journey and just say, hey, would you like to do this? And maybe they'll be like freaked out that you want to have milkshakes with them every week and they'll go, no, that's weird. And that's okay. Find someone else. But just start asking God, like, God, who is a person that you are wanting to pour in my life? Who is a person into whose life I can pour? As we're doing that, and I think John mentioned it earlier, like one way to get ministered too well is do youth ministry. As we're pouring out to other people, for me, like when I speak the word of God, I believe it the most. Like as I speak scripture, the truth of it just hits me. And that's why I like preaching. I preach to myself so much. And so there's the sense that as we're ministering to others, there's always so much coming back. Like that's how the kingdom works. As you give to others, like you get. We don't give so that we get, but that's what happens. As we serve others, so we end up being served. The kingdom works in that upside down way. So just to close off, the importance of giving people permission to speak truth in your life, it's not fun, it's not easy, but it's crucial. If you are wanting to transform, if you are wanting to make a difference in the world, if you are wanting to be a person of significance, you need to surround yourself and invite people to speak truth. One last little thing that I just thought of. A lot of the mega churches in South Africa, and I think it's happened here as well, Like the people on the top ended up being people that were untouchable. So the big parts at the top, no accountability. And then so many of those stories have ended with that person falling, extramarital affairs, stealing all the money from the church, whatever it is. The moment you separate yourself from people, the moment you stop allowing people to speak into your life, the moment you cut off accountability, that is so dangerous because there's somebody with a voice that is waiting to speak to you in those times. And he's not on your side. And if you cut yourselves off from people, the devil is roaming. He's a roaming lion. And he just wants to destroy you. And he will take the silence that you've created and he'll fill it with sound. So, just to take it back right to the beginning Exodus chapter 17. So, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. There's the story where this is a matter of life and death, and there's a physical holding up of his hands by two people that really believed in him and really wanted to serve him. And I find that in life, it can be a matter of life and death as well, in terms of spiritual life, sometimes in terms of physical life. If you've got an addiction that you're struggling with and you don't have friends that are going to speak truth into your life, it can lead to your death. And it totally affects the outcome of this battle. Because Moses had people that could stand alongside him and hold up his hands, the battle was changed. Victory was achieved. Who are the people that are holding up your hands? Who are the people that are standing at the side when you don't have the strength to do it anymore, when your faith is weak, when the doubts are creeping in, you've got nothing left to give? Who are those people that are just going to be there, that are just going to let you know that you love, that are just going to listen to you, that are going to pray with you, that are going to fight the fight with you in those moments when you are too weak? Who holds up your hands? And whose hands are you holding? As the worship team come up, let's just pray. And so, Father, I just want to remember once more just that example of Samson, the example of David, and just a life modeled well, like a life surrounded by godly people, a friend who loved closer than a brother, a mentor who spoke truth and spoke Scripture and helped lead the way, a prophet who spoke difficult words with love, a group of loyal friends and supporters and people in his army that were willing to do ridiculous missions, even just to get him a glass of water because they loved him so much and were so dedicated. Father, help us to have the vision of church, the vision of community, the vision of family, the vision of your body. Help us to surround ourselves with people as we try to do this thing of living out your life, knowing that we cannot do it by ourselves. We weren't designed to do it by ourselves, that the church was your idea. The church is your tool, it's your weapon, it's your plan to save a world in need of saving. As we sit and listen, Father, I just pray if you haven't done it already, Holy Spirit, just pop the idea of a person into someone's mind right now. As we think of who is somebody that I can ask to share their story? Who is somebody that I can invite to speak into my life? I just pray, Holy Spirit, right now, that you're just putting names into people's minds already and just let those names stick. And Holy Spirit, I ask for names of people that we can pour into intentionally. Give us a name. Show us how it looks. Is it a milkshake? Is it a run? Is it a game of squash? Is it a late night conversation? What is it? Who is that person? Father, let us be people that invite people to speak truth into our life. Let us be people that invite wounds spoken by friends. And I just pray that if there are people here today that don't have those kind of friendships, that you will bring those to be, that you will show us, highlight people, bring people across our path. I'm so grateful for those people in my life, God, and I just thank you for them right now. Help us to invite people. Help us to go to people and literally say, I want to be held accountable. I want you to hold me accountable in the way that I spend my money. I want you to check in with me once a week because I've really been struggling with porn. My attitude to my family is so bad. Just keep on dropping me a text and just saying, How's it going? Father, just give us those people. As your body, help us to be those people for each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.